Here at First Baptist Church Chattahoochee, it is critical, in my opinion, and in the leadership of our church, that we teach the Bible to the people of God in an expository way. In other words, we open the Bible, and as we've already heard the word read, and that's our text for the day, next week we'll open it at the next part, and we'll read that text, and we'll study that, and the week after that we'll do that over and over as we teach God's people God's Word. I think that that is critical. What you think is not very important. Hate to tell you. But what the Bible says is what really matters. Even what you think about yourself, unless it is what the Bible tells you, it's not that important. The Bible is our ultimate source for life and truth and goodness and beauty. And so it is essential for us. The Bible is God's primary way of communicating to us. His word is authoritative, and it's inerrant, and it's inspired. All right, now I say all that, and here comes the curveball from, it's going to drop from 11 to 4 on you, and uh, it's going to be a hard one to hit, all right? This passage today is not found in the original manuscripts. I don't want that to scare you. I don't think you need to be scared. I'm going to help you understand what that means. And as you teach, if you do, through the Scriptures, this should be reassuring you. It should be laying a stronger foundation in your faith in the Word of God. And I hope that by the time I finish, that indeed will be the case. And so, what am I saying let me, let me tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then we're going to do it, and then I'll hopefully wrap, wrap it up and tell you what I told you. The story that we are reading about this adulterous woman has been questioned if it should actually be in the Gospel of John in the place that it is. And so if you read in the footnote of some of your Bibles, you will see that there is usually a footnote there about that. So, we're going to talk about that. I'm also going to talk about what does it teach? What does this text teach? The question that I had as I studied it as the pastor, should I preach this text? That was a question that I'm going to answer here in a little bit. But I believe in the end, the main point of the story is the main thrust of the whole Bible. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack some of that as well. But let's, let's start with this. Should John 7, 53 through John 8, 11 be in your Bibles? That's the question. And, and you'll notice that in most of your Bibles it is a footnote or they have some sort of reference to say something along those lines. And so most New Testament scholars in our day do not think it was a part of the Gospel of John when it was written originally, but added later. And so when something like this happens, it's really wise or prudent 
to understand what are the, those that believe Jesus, what are the scholars, what are the intellectual heavyweights saying about this text? And so Don Carson is one that I look to often. He's one of the best New Testament scholars in the world. And this is what he says about the text. Despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against it. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. So that's what Don Carson says about the text. Leon Morris, an Australian PhD from Cambridge, New Testament scholar, says this, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. So you see some of the challenges here. I think that these scholars are right. What does that do to us? Well, I think we need to understand a few things. I think you need to understand not a lot, but something about textual criticism to kind of understand what's going on here. And we're going to talk about what that is in just a moment. But let me summarize the reasons that the scholars give for thinking the story was not original in the Gospel of John. And, give, and then I'll give some general thoughts as it relates to the science of textual criticism and how they get to where they are. And I, I think that this first part I know is a little technical. When we get through this, it's not going to be near as technical. It's going to be more teaching Bible. But if you hang with me just for a moment. Why this section isn't original to John's gospel? That's the question we're asking, right? The evidence goes like this. There's six reasons the scholars give. The story is missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. Now, the older the manuscript is, the closer it is to the time of Christ, the more reliable that manuscript is. And so they're saying the story is missing from all the Greek manuscripts before the 5th century. Number two, all the earliest church fathers omit this passage in commenting on John and pass directly from John 7.52 to John 8.12. That's the second reason. The third reason, hang on just a second. The third reason is the text flows nicely from 752. If you just read your Bible, the text flows nicely from 752 to 812. If you leave out that story, the woman, the adulterous woman, and just read the passage through, it just reads more clearly. Four. No Eastern church father cites the passage before the 10th century when dealing with this gospel. Five, when the story starts to appear in a manuscript, copies of, John, of the gospel of John, it shows up in three different places other than here in this particular area. It shows up in John 7, 36, John 7, 44, and 21, 25, and in one manuscript in Luke, 
It shows up in 2138. Six, its style and vocabulary is more unlike the rest of John's gospel than any other paragraph in the gospel. So there's six reasons scholars say this text that we're in today possibly doesn't belong where it is and possibly doesn't belong in the Bible. So then the next question, what is textual criticism, which is how they get to this end result? Textual criticism defined is the science of studying ancient manuscripts, so in this case the Bible, to determine the authentic text of the Bible. It sometimes is called lower criticism. It's necessary. Textual criticism is necessary because we no longer have in our possession the original manuscripts from Moses, Paul, and others. Textual criticism deals with Hebrew and Greek, not English translations. Because of the wealth of materials and the difficulties of many other languages involved, it's a challenging, it's a challenging study. The New Testament that we have that you're holding was first printed in Greek New Testament, and it came out, uh, Erasmus copied it, and the first printing press put it out in 1516. Why did I tell you that? Here's why I told you that. That means for 1,500 years, the manuscripts, the, the biblical books, were passed down through handwritten copies. Handwritten copies. This is how we have access to the actual words that the New Testament writers wrote. It was from their very hand. And none of those first original manuscripts exist to us today. Herein lies the problem. But you know how a good movie, you got to go down a, a bad path and then it's like, it, then it's got to get better? I just took you down a bad path. And now I think it's going to get better for you. And I think I'm going to not undermine your confidence in the Bible, but give you way more confidence in the Bible. Here we go. That is my prayer, Lord, be with me. Now, here's where it gets amazing. The abundance of the manuscripts of the New Testament are parts of the New Testament as compared with the number of manuscripts from all other ancient works is absolutely staggering, and that's important. So in my research, I understand that there are 10 existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's The Gaelic Wars, 10. Those were written around 58 BC. So those are ancient manuscripts, and all we have is 10 of them, all right? There are 20 manuscripts written from on it's it's the person that wrote it was Livy and it's Roman history and those were written around the same time as Christ so there's 20 of those There's only two manuscripts for the guy's name is like Tacitus and it's the histories and the annuals of Rome There's only two All right here's where it gets good that, that can get confusing. 
But what I'm saying is we have very little manuscripts from that age period. Listen to what the Bible offers. Compare those numbers with the manuscripts and partial manuscripts of the New Testament. These numbers are from the Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Germany, which is the most authoritative collection of such data in the world. There is a total of 5,801 manuscripts of the New Testament from that time period. These are all handwritten copies of the New Testament, parts of the New Testament, preserved in libraries, libraries around the world and now captured electronically so you could actually have access to them. Here's the point. No other ancient book comes close to the kind of wealth of diverse preservation that the Bible does. Why is that important? F.F. Bruce says it this way. Do we have that on the... Uh... Yes, good. He says this, another scholar. See if you can follow it. If the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, so as you have all these manuscripts, you make mistakes, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording in truth is remarkably small. Remarkably small. In other words, when you have that many manuscripts, you can cross-check and make sure it's right. If you only have two manuscripts, you got very little to cross-check. In other words, God gave us 5,800 and something copies, and that, in comparison to any other ancient text, is just blows it out of the water. So the Bible becomes more reliable, not less reliable. But if we're honest, our hearts are spring-loaded toward unbelief. And so when we hear this, something in us happens, and it's like we begin to wonder, we begin to challenge, could it really be that it's not even true? Why are our hearts so spring-loaded towards unbelief? In our, in our text in John 6, just a few weeks ago, we read, Jesus makes some hard sayings, and when he gets to John 6, 67 through 71, if you want, look there with me for a minute. Look in your Bibles. Jesus has said these hard things. If you were here, you remember this. But in 67, he says, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Because he'd had 5,000 followers, and now it has shrunk to 11 or 12. Judas hadn't betrayed him yet. It goes from 5,000 to 11, just like that over some hard sayings. So Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to pray betray him. Our hearts are spring-loaded to think, 
this, this isn't really the word of God. You know what has to happen for you to believe that this is the word of God? The Holy Spirit of God himself has to come into your life and take out your disbelief and your unbelief, and he has to put a heart of flesh in you, and you begin to believe and to see and to understand supernaturally. I think there's plenty of great reasons to believe the Bible, but ultimately, unless God does a work in your life, you'll always wonder, you'll always question, you'll always doubt. And even as a Christian, you may question and you may doubt. So then I come across the next hard question for me in my study this week was, should I preach this text? We've already kind of said maybe it doesn't belong. A lot of the scholars don't believe it does. Should I preach the text? The story may not belong to John's gospel. In fact, some think the story doesn't belong anywhere in the Bible. But, and most scholars agree with me on this, the message from this story is the pervasive message of the Bible. What do I mean by this? If you, if you just read the story, remember, you know, basically the Pharisees have brought this adulterous woman before Jesus, and they're saying, we should stone her. Let me just say this up front, because if you're a woman sitting here, I would be having this question. Why didn't the guy, why ain't the guy with her? Yeah. Amen. And here's the answer. I think the guy's not with her because this is all about trying to trap Jesus. In, in Leviticus, it says the man and the woman should be stoned, should be judged. So we know something's fishy right out of the gate because they're just bringing the woman. Where's the guy? Well, the guy doesn't matter as long as we can just catch Jesus in a, in a trap here. I think that's what's going on. And I think that's why the guy's not there. Um, and so the themes in this story, though, are unyielding judgment by the Pharisees. They lack compassion. Another theme is unmerited mercy by Jesus. This, this should be up front, center stage when we read the story. It should just be the, the, the big picture here. And it's a powerful story because it paints a strong picture of harsh judgment and they're neglecting their responsibility to care for the soul of this woman. She's disposable. The aim is to corner Jesus, the whole idea of the story. And she is just a tool in their theological trap to catch him and to condemn her. And so, Jesus will not play along, and he places himself above the law, and he is, in essence, why the law was even given. Here's the thing. These Pharisees have devoted their whole lives to being righteous and studying the law and knowing the law, and here's the reality of the situation. The law was given so that we would see our sin. The law was given to be a schoolmaster so that you could see your sin and it would just be ugly in your face and you would cry out, oh God, I need a savior. 
Well, here's the crazy thing about the story. They know the law. Their Savior's standing in front of them. They're so busy trying to trap him because of their own self-righteousness and because of their own pride and their own egos that they can't even see the Messiah. Oh, God, help us. We're the same way. Our arrogance and our pride and our self-righteousness keep us from seeing our Lord. See, the challenge for men throughout history, I say men, I mean men, women, children, in coming to Christ has been their own sense of morality or their own pride, their righteousness. In our study on Wednesday night, um, I know a lot of us, a lot of y'all wouldn't know that what we're doing right now, but we are reading a book on conversions, the title of the book, and it's talking about what is biblical conversion. Because I think there are lots of unbiblical conversions going on in churches across America every Sunday. And I think there are churches that are full of people that, like in Matthew 7, will one day say, Lord, Lord, didn't I go to church? Didn't I do this? Didn't I tithe? And the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So understanding biblical conversion is huge. And that's what this book is trying to help us do. The author talks in the first chapter about how people tend to pursue being nice. Because, see, if you can, and you can, I can. You can be nice, and I can be nice. We can all kind of be nice. But nice isn't made new. In John 3, we saw where Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He says, what I got to do to be saved? He says, buddy, you got to be born again. He says, born again? You mean I go back into my mother's womb? And he doesn't get it. You can't be nice enough. To get to heaven. I can't be nice enough to get to heaven. That's what the Pharisees are trying to do. And they think that they are nice enough. And so they're accusing this woman when in reality, Jesus, he, he, he turns the tables over again. He says, you miss me. Here it is. Your only hope at righteousness is right here. And you can't even see it. Your only hope at righteousness is right here. And I pray to God you see it. That Jesus Christ is the reason for the law. He came, the law came to show you your need, and Jesus came to rescue from it. And so, being nice panders to our pride. We like to be nice. You know what? I think that's why my father may have died not a Christian, is because there was a bunch of nice people in the church, and he knew there was hypocrisy. I wish the church was full of new people. When you're new, you're new from the inside out. There's this new desire. There's this new passion for God. There's a desire to treasure him above everything else. Some of us are sitting here every Sunday, and really what we're wishing is you just shut up, Clint, and I could go eat. 
versus the word of God is just raining down and you're, you're rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is better than life itself. And I, I don't know if you can really know the Lord and not get that at some level in your soul and just be rejoicing. That's what makes the church so powerful and so special is it's a time that we come together and we exalt him. We make much of him because he's worthy of it. And you know, the, the greatest thing he can do for me and for you is to, is to be the center of your life because if he is the center, then at the center of who you are, you have the greatest being in all the world. The only one that can bring you hope. The only one that can save you from your sin. The only beautiful thing and good and right and true thing is him and him alone. And so he says, put me at the center. Make much of me. If you make much of me, I will exalt you. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Maybe not in this life. Perhaps in the life to come. So this story, it points us to our sin. And you know, you see what he told the woman at the end. He says, he's merciful to her. And then he says, go and sin no more. Now, does that mean as Christians, we cannot sin? <laughs> Not even close. Read 1 John. Uh, you do that on your own extra, extra time. Not even close. You'll sin more today than you could ever imagine. I'll sin more today than I can ever imagine because it's about the heart. It's not just about what I do. And that's the whole message of the gospel. And so what he's saying to her is go and don't habitually stay in this sin of adultery. Go and pursue goodness. And so I want to tell you a story. There are three men, and each of the three stands at a pit and if you're a woman, maybe take the story and kind of apply it to you in some way. I'm sorry, I'm a man and I wrote it from a man's perspective. Uh, but you can probably do it if, as you hear the story, it'll make sense. There are three men and each of the three men stand beside a pit of lust and sin. Three ropes extend out of the pit. One bound around each man's waist. The strength of the rope or the cord is a hundred pound test. In other words... Once it gets to 100 pounds, it snaps. The first man begins to be pulled into the pit that looks exciting, but that he knows is deadly. Five pounds of pressure, then 10, then 15. He resists. He fights back. 20 pounds, 25. He digs in his heels with all his might. 30 pounds, 35 pounds. The rope starts to squeeze, and he stops resisting, and he jumps in. Click goes the mouse button. The second man begins to be pulled into the pit. Five pounds, 10 pounds, 15. He resists the fight. He's resisting. He's fighting. 20 pounds, 25. He digs his heels in. 30 pounds, 35 pounds, 40, 50. He says no, and he fights back. <clears throat> 55, 60. It's harder to breathe as the rope tightens around his stomach and it begins to hurt. 60 pounds, and he stops resisting. And he jumps in. Click. Goes the mouse button. The third man 
He begins to be pulled into the pit. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40. The rope starts to squeeze. He says no. He begins to fight back. 50 pounds, 60. He's, it's harder to breathe as the rope tightens around his stomach and he begins to hurt. 70 pounds and his feet start to slip toward the pit. He cries out for help and he reaches out to grab a branch shaped like a cross and in the distance he sees his wife going about her business, trusting him. He sees his children playing and in their hearts they admire him. And beyond them he sees Jesus filled with compassion. And the third man holds fast, 75, 80, 85, and the rope cuts into his side and the blood begins to come out and the pain stabs, 90, 95, and the tears flow down his cheeks, 100, and the rope snaps. No click. Which of these men knows the full power of temptation? Which of these men knows the full power and problem of sin? It is only the man who will fight it. I had a guy tell me one time that he didn't struggle with lust. He was the quarterback at Georgia Southern. I knew he was sleeping with his girlfriend and going to strip clubs. And I said, of course you don't struggle. You give in. No, you don't struggle. You probably never have. But here's the thing, and I don't want you to miss this. And the Pharisees did. Pursuing holiness without a transforming, profound experience of grace in your life will produce hypocrisy. You'll just be nice. You've got to be transformed. You've got to be born again. God's Spirit has to take up residence in your soul and change you from the inside out. And then the desires, the fight for holiness... All of that begins to make sense, and not only makes sense, but the strength to do it, the power to overcome. So, one way that I see men, but I also have a similar slide for women on this, is I want to show you this slide, and I know perhaps... You can't read it where you are, but I'm just going to hit some highlights. This is a man's journey, and you see the arrow going up, and it says, the heroic journey, age 1 through 32. But then somewhere in there, it seems that God does this thing, self-identity, it says right there. And, it, and underneath it, it says, it includes an appropriate sense of one's boundaries, a sense of self, which is adequate to let go of the self. A grain of wheat must die and remain just a grain of wheat. And then it goes, and you see the line going further up. It says, old fool. This is the guy that doesn't get it. He tries to keep on ascending despite the evidence and the invitations. He becomes the shallow male, the old fool. There is this crisis of limitations from age 35 to 50. It's kind of midlife crisis, a time of inner loss and meaning. And then 
When you get past that, there is what is called there the wisdom journey. And it says, well, if you take the wisdom journey, you get over to holy fool. It says, God's beloved son, the mellow grandfather who can hold together the paradoxes because God has done it in him. God is finally in control. Being human is more important than self-image, role, power, prestige, or possessions. He can lead, partner, or follow when necessary. He has it all. But you see the embittering journey. This is a journey that maybe many of you are on sitting in this room. There's confrontation. In other words, God brings trial in your life. He brings hard things. This is all, you know, 35 to 50. Wounds do not become sacred wounds. The person is still looking for something to blame or somebody to blame for the negative things that have happened in their life, and they become the cynical person. You see, God has an invitation for every man and woman to take the path of dying to self. But what happens is we're all stretching, fighting, pulling to create an identity for ourselves. When God says, your identity as a Christian is that you're mine. And you know what? That's enough. You don't have to go scratch out an identity for yourself. John Piper says it this way. Theology can conquer biology or our sin problem. Therefore, roll out of bed for one main purpose, to fall madly in love with Jesus Christ. Read such bright and beautiful and brilliant books on God that your sinful desires fade into a shadow of boring irrelevance. Listen to sermons that open your eyes to such grace and gravity that you see God, and the thought of looking anywhere else would be like staring at your shoelaces when you're at the summit of Mount Everest. Why would you stare at your shoelaces when you're at the summit of Mount Everest? You see, this is how we overcome our unbelief. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, father of the Moravian church, I've quoted him before, but he says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. You are somebody. You don't have to try to be somebody. You're his. You're a child of the king. Colossians 3.3 says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When he is revealed, you will be revealed. Oh God, help us be small that you might be big.